I'm going to do this. I'm going to run for the United States Senate. The time is now for fresh ideas and new leadership. I'm running for student council because of you and for you. That is why I stand before you today to announce my candidacy for president. Welcome to the Arena Talks podcast, where we interview emerging political leaders from across the country. Today, we interview Jessica Morse, who's a candidate for Congress in California's 4th Congressional District. Jessica has a career in national security. She's a fifth generation uh, family member uh, from this district in the Sierra Foothills. And we talk about everything from uh, forest fire prevention to reaching across the aisle to appeal to voters from different parties. Uh, this is a super enjoyable conversation. Jessica also happens to be an ARENA fellow, part of our inaugural class. So she's somebody we truly believe in and think represents the next generation of leadership in this country. Let's dive in. Jessica Morris, welcome to the Arena Talks podcast. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So Jessica, unfortunately, we're talking uh, on a day and, you know, it's October 10th and wildfires are ravaging Northern California. And I know you've got some fires in your district, which are not the ones being on, reported on right now. But uh, I wanted to start off because you, ever since I've known you, you've been talking about uh, the risks uh, that fires pose in Northern California and um, you know, policies that could help alleviate these fires. So you want to talk a little bit about what's going on and, and maybe what we could do to prevent these in the future? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to understand that forest fires aren't just natural disasters. You know, these are political disasters. These are years of negligent policies that build up or not enough resources to invest in smart planning that um, that allow forest fires to be essentially unstoppable. Um, you know, my district is in the Sierras so and in the foothills. So we have Yosemite, Lake Tahoe and all of California's gorgeous gold country and every fire season is incredibly intense for people um and and it's because you know in in the sierras it's an interesting history with it it, you know, part of the reason we have such intense forest fires is that we've had this this per- policy of fire suppression for about 80 years where we haven't allowed what are sort of regular, like I call them cleaner fires, um, regular low burning forest fires to go through, which is a natural part of both the foothills and the Sierras. When you stop those from happening, then the underbrush, the um, timber it builds up so that the fire, instead of being something that just sort of quickly cleans out the underbrush, it becomes this really intense fire that goes up into the canopy, gets exponentially hotter and is nearly impossible to control. Um, so, you know, you have this buildup that has um, been allowed to take place. And so unless we start proactively thinning the forest, putting in fire breaks, um, we're really allowing things to get out of control that, as we've seen, can be just devastating. Um You know, and I was down earlier this summer, we had a big fire in my district called the Detweiler Fire outside of Mariposa. And I was down helping the victims, um, you know, recover. And, you know, these were people that had been, they'd taken all the right steps. You know, they had cleared out um, sort of the, the, um, timber around their homes. They had sort of built in sort of essentially small personal fire breaks. They had done the steps that Cal Fire requests of them and still their homes burned. And I just had one man come in to this relief center where I was volunteering and, and he just was in shock and he was saying, we did everything right. We did everything right. And it still burned. And, and it's because these forest fires just get too hot and out of control because there is just not enough investment in, in clearing out, um, 
the bigger clearing out the forests and thinning them. Um, and so they just become out of control and they become these firestorms, which is what we're seeing now. And so you, your family goes back five generations in the Sierra foothills and, you know, you're running for California's fourth congressional district. Uh, talk a little bit about what that district, you know, what towns, what part of California is this? And what are some of the, the big issues beyond fire prevention uh, that are uh, animating the district at the moment? Sure. Um yeah, yeah, we've been there for five generations. It's pretty fun. My uh, great great grandparents came over and covered wagons, and um, you know they were pioneers and landed in the foothills. And uh, we still have the original homestead land that they had today, which is uh, which is great. My cousins still live up there. I got one cousin who has um, a micro mill, and uh, he keeps the forest thin and healthy. So we actually have my sister and I have about 50 acres. My cousins have about 120 of the original land. And, you know, it's a managed forest, which is why we haven't had any major forest fires on it. Um, and it's a healthy forest because we have somebody out there selectively logging and keeping the trees healthy. Um, and, and we've been proactive about it, which I'm really grateful for. We actually still pay property taxes on a gold mine that my great, great grandfather won in a poker bet. Um, so, and, uh, and my great, great grandmother at the turn of the century, she, she manned the telegraph booth at Donner pass. Um, and, and so would sit up there by herself in like the early 1900s and, uh, you know, with her little gun, keep the trains running on time. So my family has these long roots in the district. And, uh, yeah, we it's really amazing to be home and running in a place that I know and love so well. And so, you know, when people think California, they think, you know, heavy blue. But in the area that you uh, come from, it's currently represented by a Republican member of Congress, Walk us through the political history of this district, uh, you know, both in, in past few presidential elections, but also uh, talk a little bit about who uh, the incumbent is and why he's been successful to date. Sure. Uh, you know, Tom McClintock is has was elected in 2008 and. He won narrowly in 2008, and then the district uh, boundaries were redrawn, and and so he's had it's considered an R plus 10 district. So you'd have to swing about 10 percent of the votes to win here. Um, so it's it's heavily um, Republican, but you know that's because it's a rural community, and you know the district is Yosemite and Lake Tahoe and some of the suburbs of Sacramento, and. And so this is a community where people are often living off the land. There are a lot of families like mine where people have been there for generations. Um, they're land rich, but kind of cash poor, essentially, where, uh, you know, so one of the things I'm looking at is how to um, how to take the land that we have and turn that into economic opportunity for the community, um, because you have about like half the households in the rural counties in my district are food insecure. So they don't even know when their next meal is coming. So there's a lot of poverty issues. Um, and, you know, this is a district where a lot of people feel, you know, this kind of fierce pioneer independence of a sense of, you know, get the government off my land and out of my life. And, you know, and McClintock appeals to that message by saying the government should do nothing. And so people like that. 
but they don't recognize that what this, his positions, his very, you know, ideologically conservative positions are actually actively harming our community. Um, for example, fire prevention really is the top issue people struggle with because it impacts, you know, the forest fire doesn't ask whether or not you're a Republican or Democrat, you know, it impacts the entire community and, um, you know, all the same. And, and so McClintock has blocked funding for forest fire prevention. He's not putting in sufficient funds. And as a result, it ends up costing us significantly more um, to try to put out these forest fires than making the small forward investment in prevention. You know, for example, it costs $72 million to put out the Butte fire a few years ago. It cost $2,000 to build a fire break that saved the town of McCallum Hill, which was right in the path of that fire and would have gone up in hours um, had that fire break not been put in. And so a small forward investment of several hundred thousand dollars in fire breaks in these areas would save us tens of millions of dollars just in the cost of containing the forest fire, let alone the economic ramifications of the devastation that the forest fire leaves in its wake. Um, and so McClintock doesn't make that connection. He doesn't see how small investment actually saves money in the long run. And that's the point that I've been putting out in our community that people really understand. You know, that's how I'm getting actually Republicans and Democrats on board with my campaign alike, because it makes sense to them that that proactively finding solutions for our community is cheaper in the long run than just neglecting it and being hands off that we need to make some small investments from the government to to really um, improve the lives of the people in our community. So what are you hearing out there when you talk to Republicans, including Republicans who voted for Trump? Uh, what what does a successful conversation to you sound like? You know, we definitely know what the unsuccessful conversations sound like. I, I know, you know, you know this about me, my brother and dad both voted for Trump. Uh, and I have a lot of unsuccessful conversations with them, but when you're out there, uh, what, give us some hope here. What, what, tell us about some conversations you're having out there. Yeah. You know, I have the advantage of having most of my family are, are Republicans. And so I've been, you know, talking with them a long time and I have always been committed to being, um, intellectually curious you know, I'm never out to sort of convert anybody, but I am out to sort of have us refocus our attention on being part of a community. You know, for example, one of my cousins during the last campaign was really into all these conspiracy theories. And um, and so he was posting on Facebook about Hillary Clinton and Pizzagate and child sex trafficking. And I thought, you know, I could try to argue, you know, the facts of this with him. Um, but I'm not sure if that would be effective. So I asked myself, what is it that he's reacting to? What is it that is actually making him mad that he's hearing on the news that he's seeing in this little piece of that, that inspired him to post this on Facebook? And I decided, and so I wrote to him and I said, hey, it really looks like you're concerned about human trafficking. And I said, human trafficking is a really serious issue. Here's four, um, you know, organizations in your community that are actively trying to stop um, human trafficking, you should volunteer with them. And then here's a book that I read in college that allowed me to later identify and uncover a human trafficking ring when I was in Baghdad. And amazingly enough, he volunteered with the organizations and he read the book. And and suddenly now, you know, this guy who was just into conspiracy theories is now 
you know, able to be proactive on stopping human trafficking in our community. And so I think there's a lot that we have to ask ourselves, how can we redirect this outrage people are feeling into something constructive and positive for our community that they can take steps on now? And I've been finding that very effective throughout my entire district. So speaking of human trafficking, uh, when you worked at, uh, I think it was when you're at USAID, you helped uncover a human trafficking ring in Iraq. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. This was a rather amazing moment, you know, because in Iraq, I was out there, um, you know, working on rebuilding Iraq's um, civil service corps. And it was a, you know, full time, very intense job. I was working 18, 20 hour days where, you know, I like I, I couldn't find my hairbrush, but I didn't notice for three weeks. That's how hard I was working. And um, I. I had befriended the Nepalese kitchen crew because I um, had worked in Nepal for a little while teaching women to be trekking guides. And I spoke a little bit of Nepalese. I knew the villages they were from. And so I was the only one who was really able to chat with them in a, in a deeper way. Um, and one day I was talking with these guys and they said that they had paid a fee to get this job. And that raised an instant red flag for me. And so I started asking them about some other symptoms of human trafficking. You know, did you guys know you were coming to Iraq? And they said, no. Did you, um, you know, do you have your passports? And they said, no, they were taken away when we got here. And, and, and I suddenly realized that my friends were, were enslaved, you know, that they were modern bonded laborers. And, so, you know, I instantly was able to fix this with the USAID contracting officer. I brought this to her attention and we were able to fix their immediate situation. You know, I gave them, you know, we gave them their passports back, gave them their fees back, gave them the option to go home, improve their working conditions, just because none of us were aware of it. And so I started asking around at the other bases and found out that this was actually an incredibly common problem throughout the entire military theater that most of the food service workers were bonded laborers. And so we were able to get this into the attention of a three-star uh, general who was able to fix this at the Pentagon level throughout the whole theater. But that, you know, I wanted to understand how this had happened. And so I went, um, you know, I spent a summer working on the Congressional Commission for Wartime Contracting specifically to tackle this problem. And so we were able to put together a congressional hearing and uh, that held the subcontractors to account because it turned out that U.S. labor laws didn't apply, you know, for subcontracts down. It was only the first two subcontractors that were that we held accountable. And beyond that, we didn't um, monitor them. And so we changed um, U.S. contracting law and were able to change our um inspector general standards so that wherever U.S. tax dollars went, our standards applied. And um, and then I put trainings, I put together some trainings at USAID and state that uh, so that all of our staff could now be alert to human trafficking. So we were able to, you know, put in place real solutions so that this, you know, so that U.S. tax dollars would never pay for slavery again. And so was that your first experience with U.S. Congress? Um, I know I had worked with them before. So the, the timeline here is that I worked in Iraq for a couple of years. When I left Iraq, I worked at State Department and I managed the foreign aid budget for Iraq. So I went up onto the Hill and was negotiating with the appropriations committees um, and 
to try to guarantee that we had, we were trying to get funds in place that would secure the, um, the work that the surge had done in Iraq so that uh, we were trying to prevent essentially what became ISIS, um, the rise of the militias through, you know, trying to get those guys to work. And so, I mean, that was a fascinating experience working, um, with the Hill and managing, you know, billions of dollars of our aid dollars and trying to make those more effective, um, and then, and then when I was in graduate school, I took the job with the Congressional Commission on Wartime Contracting. Um, so I've worked federal budget, I've worked uh, foreign aid issues uh, and, and foreign policy, you know, national security issues, kind of worked in all three branches of our U.S. national security strategy, defense, development and diplomacy. Um, and so if you ask yourself, what's the job of somebody in Congress, you know, it's the federal budget and uh, and foreign policy. And so, you know, I've done all of those. Uh, I've done that work before. So Congress, I, the learning curve won't be as steep for me going in. Great. And so let's <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about your race. So you have uh, a few primary challengers and uh, an incumbent in, in all likelihood that you will be running against uh, in the general. Uh, later this week, uh, you will probably be releasing your fundraising numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's uh, it's safe to say that you are uh, in a good position in the primary. You're getting your name out there. You've been raising resources as well or better than um, your opponents. Uh, what are some of the biggest challenges, though, that you're facing out there early, uh, you know, given the fact that you're a first-time candidate and you're running uh, in, you know, to ultimately unseat an incumbent? Well, I think what's exciting is that, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit, I, you know, sort of humbled and surprised myself how well this race is going because I'm a first time candidate. You know, I knew going in that this was, you know, sort of like jumping off a waterfall and, um, and, you know, I took the time to do a listening tour of my district first. Um, and so before I filed, that's why I filed at the beginning of July rather than in April, because, I spent three months touring the 10 counties in my district, meeting with every elected official and county supervisor that I could that I could get a hold of, meeting with local mayors and Cal Fire chiefs, um, school boards, hospital boards, because I wanted to understand the issues that people were facing directly rather than rather than the issues that were sort of being reported, you know, in partisan ways on the news, Um, because I really feel like to be effective in this, this just in this district and in our country. You have to be willing to represent your entire community and be solution oriented. And so because I took that foundation to took the time to build that foundation to really understand the issues, I've been finding that I've been able to resonate effectively across the aisle because people are just hungry for a representative who is talking about community, talking about solutions. You know, my sense of winning isn't the other side losing. You know, my sense of winning is when we find real effective change for our community that meets everybody's needs. And I mean, it's surprising to me that this is apparently a novel approach. Um, and but this should be the standard in in politics. You know, being an elected official is really about being a public servant. And so I've been going in with this message throughout the district saying, hey, you know, it's time for the games to stop. We are we are here to serve our community. You know, I've been serving my country my entire career. I'm home serving my community that I love. And that resonates across the aisle very effectively. And I think that's why we've been so effective. And, um, 
And so, you know, I think the challenge is just getting the message out. You know, McClintock, who I'm running against, you know, he's been in there for about 10 years and he is somebody who is so devoted to his political philosophy that he neglects our community. You know, he's voted against the Rural Broadband Act. And this is a community where about half the district doesn't have access to the Internet. And and that means that our rural hospitals aren't able to take advantage of telemedicine because they don't have the dial up speed to be able to um, get that access. Um, you know, it means that we can't get the most modern agricultural equipment in our district because we don't have that access. And so he's actively stagnating our economy. And what's frustrating is that the Rural Broadband Act, it passed. And so our tax dollars in this district are paying for broadband to get laid in, um, you know, Arkansas and Kansas and Alaska, but not in Northern California. And so we need a representative who's going to work for us. You know, this is a man who voted for the government shutdown in 2013 and you know, that cost our economy $24 billion, according to Standard & Poor's. It also shut down Yosemite National Park, which then in turn shut down all of the communities outside of Yosemite, which means that meant it shut down all of these small businesses in my district. And many of those business owners I've talked to never recovered because he shut them down for two weeks at peak tourist season, right after they had suffered from a forest fire that had ravaged the district, the Rim Fire. And and so they had already been shut down for a month before that. And they just they just never recovered. So many businesses, you know, were shut down because of the decision of their Congress representative. You know, and finally, this is a man that the rest of the country gets outraged about this. You know, he actively denies climate change. And you know, it in our district, it's not popular to talk about climate change, but I t tend to point out to people that it doesn't matter whether or not we talk about climate change because he actively says, well, we he's actively arguing about whether or not climate change exists. He's not taking proactive steps on the issues we need solved in our community, whether it's drought, fire prevention, 120 million trees dying in the forests, um, investment in renewable energy, because he's arguing about whether or not climate change is real. He's not taking the time to invest in the problems that we're seeing firsthand in our district that are impacting our community where we need active solutions now and active investment now to solve. And so this sort of do nothing approach that the incumbent has is actively neglecting our district in a way that has devastating results for decades to come. And so that's not good enough for me. And that's why I've stepped up to run. And so <clears throat> do you get any uh, slack or flack from the left when you say uh, things like, you know, this doesn't have to be zero sum for, you know, <clears throat> for, <clears throat> sorry, for one party to win, the other party doesn't have to lose. Um, I ask because, you know, we at the arena summits, we send a very similar message. And I imagine one of the reasons is, you know, you and I have similar family histories in that respect. Um, but we also get a lot of uh, static from people who, um, you know, understandably feel like we're in a fight to save this country and have a different interpretation of how we deal uh, across party lines. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I think there's a cultural shift that we have to make in our country. And I've been grateful that people are on board. 
you know, people are on board. I'm essentially refocusing them away from the national dialogue that sees them as divided, you know, from where people are sort of entrenched in their two camps and, um, and putting them, you know, having them refocus on the issues that are directly impacting our community. You know, when I was in that volunteering with that Detweiler fire relief group, nobody walking into that relief center was seeing themselves as a Republican or Democrat. They were members of a community. And so the message that I've been going out with this message of, Hey, let's dissolve the partisanship. Let's proactively work together as a community that resonates with both sides. You know, I'm not getting pushback from the left saying you're not left enough. It's, it's people saying, you know, when I'm saying, am I community enough? You know, (laughs) there's not, there's not a side to that. And Um, You know, I was surprised. I, you know, one of my first events, I invited my um, Republican family to come to the Placer Women Democrats uh, candidate forum. And they had never been to anything that had Democrat on it in their life. And they, they, you know, were a little reluctant to come. And I said, you guys have to come. You know, it's my first time doing a public event um, as a political candidate. When do you ever see me do something professional at home? You know, come on, guys. And, and I said, if we fail, you're taking me to ice cream. And they said, OK. And so they showed up. And I made a very deliberate point. Most of the other candidates introduced themselves as moderate Democrats. I made it a very specific point not to label myself. And instead, I talked about issues, values and solutions. And after the event, my relatives who had been reluctant to support me, frankly, um, they were just gushing. I had an aunt who was telling everyone this is my niece, you know, and she had made my uncle call me beforehand and say, you know, she probably won't be able to do anything for my campaign because, you know, I decided to run as a Democrat. And um, and so she's gushing, telling everyone she's now my strongest supporter. At that same event, I had somebody come up to me who was very hardcore progressive and she kind of poked me in the chest and she said, we don't want any of these damn moderates. We need a hardcore progressive just like you. And, and this message of saying partisan games are done resonates whether somebody is the furthest right Trump supporter or the furthest left progressive, because I think people are hungry for real solutions. Um, and that's how I've gotten, you know, it seems like we haven't done the full calculation, but it seems, it feels like about roughly a third of my contributions are coming from Republicans. Um, And then hardcore progressives are donating, too. So we've got the full spectrum. You know, we have evidence that the full spectrum is appreciating this message. And I think that's a great sign for our country that we can move forward together. And so there are are three questions we ask everybody as we close out. Uh, And so I'm going to ask them one at a time here. You know, the first one is who is somebody, you know, living or dead, uh, a leader that you really admire and that you find yourself coming back to and thinking about as you embark on this crazy journey and running for office? Uh, Teddy Roosevelt. I, yeah, I actually too. I, Teddy Roosevelt and Cory Booker. Um, Teddy Roosevelt. I love that, you know, he, he, he's the guy who wins the, the book, um, how the other half lives. Uh, one of the first sort of books about poverty in American history came out, you know, he immediately wrote to the author and said, how can I help? 
what can I do? Um, and he was somebody who was constantly innovating, thinking through grand strategy, local strategy to try to find real solutions to real problems. He was somebody who took the lessons of history and applied them to our country and came out with really innovative approaches that um, hadn't been done before. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican who started the progressive movement. Um, and so I really admire sort of his um, approach uh, to problem solving. And so Teddy Roosevelt was willing to kind of break down the barriers. He didn't ask himself what was politically popular. He asked himself what was going to be effective. And um, and so that's the model that I want to emulate. I think the other person I really admire is Cory Booker, where um, part of the reason I'm running is that when I was uh, in graduate school, Cory Booker came and gave a three-part um, talk. He was still mayor of Newark. And it was it was a surprisingly small audience um, in this big auditorium. I think I was sitting you know, towards the front with Cory Booker's parents, um, Cornell West and Maya Angelou. And, um, and Cory Booker gave this talk over three-night period about his approach to public service. And he was talking about how he had moved into the projects to live in the community that he was representing. He was somebody, you know, here he is spouting his, you know, sort of, uh, you know, the philosophy he had learned at Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar and, and living in the projects and this very sort of practical on the ground approach to his community. You know, Cory Booker is one of the only candidates I ever hear talking about love, you know, as a guiding principle in, um, in politics. And, and I really have admired that approach and that commitment to, um, to serving his community first and foremost, and um, not getting encumbered by uh, partisan ideology and, and being sort of above that in a way that really asks, what's the impact on the ground? So yeah, those are, those are some models I try to emulate. Okay. Second question is, what is a belief that you have that is... Oh, by, by the way, you know, Ravi, um, the arena quote, um, you know, before I had ever even heard of the arena, that's um, that was the background on my computer when I that was sort of my theme for this campaign. I, I, re, I readjusted it to call it the woman in the arena. And oh, nice. um, and that was that was my theme. You know, I was like uh, it was sort of the, the, the sticky note I put on the mirror so that I could look at that in the morning, and be like, we are diving in head first to the deep end. Um, but this is a moment in history where I have to be, I can't stand on the sidelines that I have to dive in because the impact is too, the need is too great and the consequences, you know, be damned. We are diving in and doing this because my community needs me. Um, yeah, and we made a similar edit on our website to, uh, to include women in the quote. I saw that. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Uh, so second question, and we'll actually end on this one is uh, what is a view that you have that is not particularly uh, popular either within the Democratic Party uh, or, you know, in your district as a whole that you just are going to hold, you know, hold tight to and, you know, you just believe it and you're just going to be straight up with voters and say, look, this is what I believe. Not all of you, most of you might not believe this, but um, I'm going to stick to principle. Yeah. I mean, I think there's sort of a, a few sort of, policy priorities that probably wouldn't be top of the Democratic Party's list. Like I'm very concerned about sort of the national debt. Um, I don't think that means we need to sort of neglect um, our social safety net, but, um, you know, but I'll be prioritizing that. But I think sort of in terms of a value, 
um, I think this, this radical idea of, of putting my community above my party, um, is what I'm going to stick to and, and, and going out and saying, you know what, I am not going to be a yes man for the party, but I will be somebody who is, who is a fervent advocate for our community and our country. And I think that is solid, safe ground to stand on that my community can always count on me to do, if I don't think the party is doing what's in the interest of our community or our country, I'm not going to stick with them, you know, and, um, but I am going to stick with sort of the values of ensuring that no one in my community is left behind, that no one in my community is neglected. Um, I am willing to talk to anyone regardless of their political party or even their history. Like I will sit down and be willing to listen and understand anyone's perspective. Um, and me listening to someone doesn't mean I have to agree with them, but it means that that's the foundation that our democracy was built on. You know, I, I talk about this in my, on the campaign trail a lot that when I took an oath as a public service, that 10, that 10 years I spent sort of traveling around the world, getting into sort of the grit on the front lines of some of these tough countries like Baghdad, like Burma, like India. Um, I took an oath to defend and protect the constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And this is not an oath to defend a political party. It's not an oath to defend a president or personality. You know, it's an oath to defend the very foundation of our democracy. And that democracy builds dialogue into its very foundation. You know, our constitution has into its very fabric this concept of bringing two disparate sides together and then working towards a solution moving forward. So I don't care what party somebody's from, if they are saying that they're not willing to have a dialogue or willing to listen or ha or understand, which is, you know, what my opponent has been doing, why I'm running against him, um, then, you know, then that's somebody who is who is making a mockery of our Constitution. And so this isn't always a politically popular decision or a stance to take, but I am on solid ground when I am running on a commitment to defend our Constitution and to put dialogue and compromise and um, and listening above everything, above party, um, above personality. And and that's the solid ground that I am committed to um, stand on throughout my entire political career, which is launching now. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. And I'm just so honored to be part of the arena and to be part of this movement that is changing our political culture. I think we're having a real impact here.